Ever hear of Earl Harry Dutch Clark? And no, that's not just four first names being listed. What about the Gridiron's Flying Dutchman? According to a 1929 newspaper asking that same first question, if you happen to be from within a 400 mile radius of Denver at that time, then you would answer why Clark's just about the greatest all-around football player ever. And if you take a trip to the Canton Pro Football Hall of Fame, you will come across the bronze bust of Earl Dutch Clark. When you do, you will likely see reference to his 1935 NFL championship win with the Detroit Lions. His six all-NFL selections in six straight seasons played, and his three scoring titles as either the quarterback, tailback, or kicker for the Portsmouth Spartans and Detroit Lions. There might even be reference of Dutch being the best and last drop kicker in football, a lost art from the origins of the game. Maybe even see a quote from a rival coach that once said, if Dutch stepped on the field with Red Grange, Jim Thorpe, and George Gipp, Dutch would be the general. And there may even be a story about being part of the 1936 Lions famed infantry attack that set an NFL team rushing yards record, an overall record that stood for 36 years until the undefeated Dolphins ran for more. And their per game average of 240 yards is still number one all time, with his 1934 team still ninth on that list. Then at the age of 32, after the 1938 season, Dutch's pro football playing career ended, for good that time, though not entirely by choice, and not before being one of the last player coaches in the NFL to serve as his team's head coach while also playing. Tom Landry and Dan Reeves after him were only assistant coaches. Prior to the 1937 season, Dutch's last playing full-time, he had been named the Lions head coach a tradition from the early days of football and sports in general, and pretty famously for the city of Detroit back then. In the first college football game played, and for the first decade plus, the captain of each squad was also considered their coach. Then as football evolved, it long kept the tradition of the game not being coached from the sidelines. In fact, early rulebooks in Dutch's era and before specifically prohibited sideline coaching, Coaches were instead motivators, and more importantly, teachers of the game, like the late 1800s, when the early Ivy League players traveled across the country as coaches, teaching the game to college's first fielding teams. Those rulebooks were also clear that football was considered a game to be played by the players, using their own muscles and their own brains. The term field general as a quarterback comes from this old practice, and Dutch ran the show as brilliantly as anyone else of his time. He was considered the best, and the prototype for both a field general and a true dual, even triple threat quarterback. In college, before the forward pass became what we now know, Dutch ran what was considered then to be a highly developed passing game. Then, towards the end of his career, sports writers looked back on him as being the greatest back of all time which at that time, there were essentially four positions on offense considered to be backs. The quarterback, the halfback, the fullback, and the tailback. Some backfields would contain one or more of each. 
All of them had the job of running the ball, sometimes even passing the ball, or being the recipient of a pass, and if doing none of those, blocking for the back who was, but generally just one quarterback. Their job also entailed organizing the offense into a desired formation, calling a play, receiving the ball to start each play, and executing the play by getting the ball to the right player. They ran the show. This was also the time of all-time great backs who helped shape the game early on, like Red Grange, Jim Thorpe, and long before them, Walter Camp, the father of American football. So Dutch was carrying on a few traditions, like many greats before him, and many after. Great player coaches, like Curly Lambeau, George Hallis, and Ernie Nevers, who was also considered a brilliant field general. And remarkable backs, like Red Grange and Jim Thorpe. Dutch was all of them in one. And all of them, along with him, were among the charter class inducted to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1963. These stories, traditions, and more are among those you will find when it comes to the legend of the Gridiron's Flying Dutchman. But there's one story that does not get told, at least not since it took place way back in 1937, and then a few mentions of it the following year, but never again not even when Dutch was inducted to the Hall of Fame. Possibly because that class also contained the first officially recognized winner of any NFL Most Valuable Player award, Mel Hine, and possibly many other reasons. So with the NFL recently presenting the MVP award as part of its close to the season, it seems like a good time to finish telling old football stories here for a bit, by telling the tale of one of the NFL's greatest backs to play the game in the early days, and arguably the first winner of any NFL's Most Valuable Player Award. But before we get there, let's rewind back from the culmination of Dutch's football accomplishments to the start of his football legacy, one that began as the best player anyone had seen out of the Rocky Mountains, at least to that point. Earl Clark was born and raised in southeast Colorado, a little town of less than a thousand about 60 miles southeast of Colorado Springs. By 1906 when he was born, football was already a national entertainment. More than 150 schools fielded teams that year, and it was the first with the newly legalized forward pass, something Dutch himself would later have a part in the growth of. Football had even spread west by then. The Rose Bowl had its first edition played four years prior in 1902, and there were around a dozen teams between the Rocky Mountains and West Coast. In fact, the first Rocky Mountain school to play football and furthest west at the time was Colorado College in Colorado Springs. The school recognizes a game played in 1882 against the Sigafoos Hose Company, a local group of volunteer firemen and some even claim there were three games played that year, two against Sigafoos and one a loss to a local high school. That, of course, was not uncommon for the time, though, as it was only the 14th year intercollegiate football games had been played, or seventh if counting from the first game with rugby rules universally adopted, or tenth since the founding of the Intercollegiate Football Association. 
In any case, there were also only around 25 schools in the country playing interscholastically, and this was before there was funding or boosters to pay for teams to travel around the country, so they had to find opponents somewhere. The state of Colorado then saw its first intercollegiate football match two and a half years later in the spring of 1885, a game in which Colorado College beat Denver University 12-0. And football would soon spread to the West Coast, when the University of California Berkeley fielded a team and played nine games in the spring of 1886. They would end up opening the 1920s as arguably the best team in college football, with national championships claimed in each season from 1920 to 1923. So the game was spreading west and becoming popular in the Rockies. By 1890, four Colorado schools had fielded a team, one of those the University of Colorado Silver and Golders, and together formed the second football conference in history, the Colorado Football Association. The CFA would fold two decades later, but its members founded the Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference, a conference that still exists and the one in which Dutch Clark would play his college ball. All that to say, as Dutch grew up, Colorado and the Rocky Mountain area was no stranger to the game of football, and according to accounts of Dutch growing up, he was a sensational all-around athlete, the best in the state. At Pueblo Central High School, Dutch was an all-state selection in both football and basketball, multiple times each, won conference championships in both, even had an all-American selection in basketball after playing in a Chicago tournament, and in track and field, he set league records for both the high hurdles and discus. Even then, his football teams were referred to as having fast, machine-like organization, He led his team to the state semifinals in both his junior and senior seasons, unfortunately losing to La Junta both times. And in his final high school game, the Galloping Dutch, as a newspaper referred to him at the time, took a kickoff 85 yards for a touchdown, scoring his team's only points and sending the crowd of 6,000 into an uproar. After graduation, he went to Colorado College and did a lot of the same. His freshman year, he was a sensation for the Frosch football team and was the mainspring of the basketball team that won the East of the Rocky Mountain Conference but lost in the championship game. Then for his sophomore year, he became a starter on the varsity football team, though not the quarterback yet. In high school, he was selected to the All-State team as a halfback and going into the 1927 season, expected to start at the same. By season's end, He was a unanimous selection for the all-conference team as the fullback, and newspapers were starting to compare him to Red Grange, who was also a national star in football. Grange had been the first-ever unanimous All-American selection in 1924, with all six selectors choosing him. He appeared on the cover of Time magazine in the fall of 1925, and even then was considered by some to be the greatest running halfback of all time. And regardless of what the game looked like, there were over 50 years of backs to choose from at that point. Then immediately after the 1925 college season ended, Grange announced he was going pro. Reportedly hours after beating Ohio State, he signed with the Chicago Bears and went on a two-month barnstorming tour around the country to help raise the popularity of the pro game, and according to some stories, make a good amount of money while doing so. 
so Dutch was already being compared to the greats of the time, and had led Colorado College to a conference championship game in the 1927 season. Unfortunately, another championship caliber team for Dutch that came up just a bit short. That year was also the first sighting in newspapers of the nickname that would stick with him the rest of his life, the Flying Dutchman. A name made popular two decades earlier by baseball legend Honus Wagner, also because of his superb speed. Dutch's speed and shiftiness were referred to as dangerous in a broken field, but he could also plow the line almost as well, and he was considered an accurate passer for the time, which worked well with his then-head coach Bully Vandegraaff's aerial attack, Bully being an Alabama favorite the state's first All-American in 1915, and now in the Alabama Sports Hall of Fame. After proving his ability on the football field his sophomore year, Dutch went on to continue doing the same in both basketball and track and field. He was the school's only three-sport letter winner that year. The following football season, in 1928, Dutch would take control of the team when their star quarterback from the past two seasons, Roy Vandenberg, went down with an ankle injury. At that point, it was reported that Dutch and Vandenberg made up 90% of the team's offensive attack, and expectations with Vandenberg out were that CC's hopes had taken a decided slump. Dutch would go on to effectively be 100% of the team's offensive attack from then on. He would end that season with an All-American selection from the Associated Press as the first-team quarterback the first player out of the Rocky Mountains to get a selection as All-American. In seven games, he gained 1,261 yards from scrimmage, an average of 180 yards per game. But even more impressive was his average of 10 yards per carry, reported then as a record, and even now, with college stats compiled back to 1956, only two players have averaged 10 yards per carry for a full season, and both ran for less yards than Dutch. He also scored nearly double the points as the next closest player in his conference, 103 points compared to 54 for the next closest. Dutch had finally gained national notoriety, like many greats before him. Red Grange, Jim Thorpe, George Gipp, the win one for the Gipper, Gip. This was also the first time Dutch was referred to as the quarterback of his team, and for every all-conference or all-league selection he received from that point forward until the end of his playing career was as the quarterback. Of course, the story on the Pro Football Hall of Fame's website may read slightly different. Their story of Dutch sounds more like one of a not particularly fast tailback with bad eyesight. The part about bad eyesight was true, though. A college graduation write-up noted that one of the most remarkable features of Dutch's career is that he scaled extraordinary heights of accomplishment in spite of poor eyesight. Dutch himself had admitted it almost cut short his career, and is also the story as to why he was not as adept at playing baseball, the national pastime. The Hall does, however, note that in one season he completed 53.5% of his passes, when the league average was just 36.5%. And while a career completion rate of 45% may not blow anyone's socks off, 
it was above league average for the time. Compare him to Arnie Herber of the Packers, who played at the same time as Dutch and threw the ball as much as anybody in the league during Dutch's career. According to stats that have been compiled, Herber ended his career with a 40% completion rate compared to Dutch's 45%. He may have only averaged half the passing attempts, but at the time of his retirement, only Ed Donowski of the Giants and Bob Monet of the Packers had thrown more passes at a higher completion rate, only by a few percentage points too. But that is not the biggest reason why he was considered the best quarterback of his time. And the Hall does mention that Dutch was called the quarterback because he called the plays, which is also true. As mentioned, he was a brilliant field general and referred to as a floor general in basketball as well. But in my opinion, saying he was only called the quarterback because he called the plays is a disservice to the players who paved the way for both the greatest field generals in history and the mobile quarterbacks that have always been a thrill for fans to watch, and is now, to a degree, the model for a typical quarterback, albeit maybe not traditional. Dutch was the quarterback, the field general, and the best athlete in any game he played, which the Hall of Fame does mention that he was a true triple threat back. No truer statement could be made. By his senior season, he was talked about as the best football player to ever come out of the Rocky Mountains, and he would retain that title for about a decade until a kid named Wizzer came along, a story for a bit further down the road. Unfortunately for Dutch's 1929 season, though, it was not expected to go as well due to losing many three-year players and several of Dutch's key blockers, then referred to as interferers. The team finished in the middle of the pack, but Dutch again led all scorers in the conference and finished his collegiate football career scoring all 13 points in a win to finish the season. After he hung up the cleats in college, he would go on to earn his fourth straight all-conference selection in basketball, averaging 17.7 points per game and leading his team as their floor general. He would then finish out his collegiate athletic career, setting a conference record in the hammer throw at his final track and field meet. Papers reported that he was given a big hand by the crowd during his final event as it was the end of a college career studded with remarkable performances. It was also reported in February of 1930, while still competing, that he was being considered for the job of assistant football coach and head coach of the basketball team at the University of Wyoming, and that he was interested as well. Then in March, Colorado College met with Dutch about staying on as the basketball coach there. Reports of the meeting stated that the college desired to keep the Flying Dutchman as he had been the greatest athletic drawing card the school had ever seen, and he had taken them out of the deficit class and into a sound financial footing. Also, his popularity with high school stars who were prospective students only bolstered his case to be made coach. In June of that year, he graduated seemingly leaving his playing days behind him. During his time at Colorado College, he received 12 varsity letters, three in football, four each in basketball and track and field, and even got one in baseball. But even more importantly, in the life of the Flying Dutchman, on the day he received his diploma, he married his high school sweetheart, Dorothy Schrader. It had also already been reported that Dutch would be returning to Colorado College 
as a coach. His plan was to take a trip out east with his new wife and make some stops at a few coaching schools along the way. He would then return in the fall as an assistant coach for the football team and the head coach of the basketball team. For a star athlete at the time, he had made it. That was the dream. Pro football leagues were still considered a failing effort. Circus-like showcases of former college greats past their prime. No dreams of playing in front of massive crowds in the Super Bowl. Those days were now behind him in the college game. And there was nothing really significant in pro basketball either. So with the Great Depression just starting, Dutch had job offers right out of college. For many at the time, that was enough and could have been the end of the legend of the gridiron's flying Dutchman. But as we know, it was not. He did, however, coach as planned for the 1930-31 academic year. And while he did, a small town in Ohio had been fielding a non-NFL pro football team with some success since 1928. So in 1930, the town decided to build a stadium. That decision arguably led to the birth of the Detroit Lions. The 1929 Portsmouth Spartans had claimed not only the Ohio Valley League Championship, but also dubbed themselves the 1929 Independent Pro Champions of the United States. In fact, it was reported that the NFL actually refused to sanction a postseason game between the champion Green Bay Packers and the Spartans. But then in July of 1930, Due to a mix of the Spartans' previous success, an agreement to build a new stadium, and the league's desire to grow rather than continue losing teams as it had been doing the past few years, the Spartans were officially admitted to the NFL. And by September, their new $100,000 stadium was ready for the opening kickoff of the season. Universal Stadium, now named Spartans Municipal Stadium, officially opened on Sunday, September 14, 1930 as home of the Portsmouth Spartans. Of the old American sports stadiums that are still standing, only Wrigley Field and City Stadium in Green Bay are older and housed an NFL team earlier. Soldier Field, among a few others, may be older, but were not home to an NFL team earlier than 1930. That day saw the Spartans defeat the Newark Tornadoes a team that as an organization played football in some fashion across nearly a full century from 1887 to 1970, though with some gaps and only two seasons in the NFL, that 1930 season being their last. The Spartans were led by the previous season's All-American quarterback from Iowa, Willis Glasgow, and star back Roy Father Lumpkin, who interestingly had a boxing match that spring to settle an on-field rivalry, of course not really helping the circus perception of the pro game at that time, especially considering only a few lines after it in some newspaper previews had mention of the circus taking over Madison Square Garden, so the regular weekly clown acts by foul fighters was not going to be held. That would have been the third version of Madison Square Garden. Lumpkin had apparently boxed before, so this was reportedly a legitimate match, and some previews even noted that his opponent, Tiny Powell, had been signed by a boxing manager prior to the match in case he happened to get the KO, which he did. Father Lumpkin would end up being a teammate of Dutch for a few seasons, and even had an all-pro selection in 1932. 
The rest of that 1930 season for the Spartans was up and down, ending the season with a record of 5-6-3, eighth of 11 in the standings with the Packers sitting on top and claiming the NFL's league championship title. Then in May of 1930, it was reported that the Rocky Mountain sensation, Dutch Clark, had signed to play with the Portsmouth Spartans. A deal had been reached for him to continue as the head coach of his alma mater's basketball team, and rather than be the assistant coach of the football team, he would play professionally. So on Sunday, September 13th, 1931, the Flying Dutchman made his professional football debut, and as the substitute quarterback led the Spartans to a 14-0 victory over the Brooklyn Dodgers. No relation to the baseball team of the same name, though they did both play at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. In that debut for Dutch, it was reported that he entered the game in the second quarter and shoved the Spartans down the field, leading them to the game's first touchdown. By the start of November, at that time the final month of the season, the Spartans were battling the Packers for leadership of the league, and they suffered their first defeat of the season to begin the month. That loss to the Giants, though, was without Dutch, as he had been unable to play due to what was reported as a twisted knee, just one of the many examples in his career about how valuable he was to his teams. He came back for the following game against the Bears in what was expected to be a clash between two of the strongest teams in the professional league. Unfortunately, Dutch reportedly re-injured his knee while also breaking two ribs. He had to be removed from the game, and it was reported that he would miss the remainder of the season. Then a few days later, Dutch denied reports of broken ribs and said he planned to start the following week, and did continue to play that season. By that point, he was already being compared to Benny Friedman of the Giants. Friedman was considered the best quarterback in the game, a two-time All-American in college at Michigan. Interestingly, he became the starter his sophomore season after an embarrassing loss to Illinois, in which Redgrange famously scored four touchdowns in 12 minutes of game time while amassing 262 yards. Friedman had also been selected as the NFL's first-team all-league quarterback four years straight to that point, until Dutch came along. Sports writers picked up right where they left off talking about Dutch on the football field, talk of his brilliance as a field general, and his remarkable ability to make players miss tackles. After one game, it was said that he ran for a 59-yard touchdown through the entire Cardinal team. The Spartans would finish that season 11-3, and in second place to the league champion Packers. There was no championship game at that point, though, nor did the Spartans and Packers play each other that season. Packers finished 12-2 at the top of the standings, which at the time meant they were named league champion. A great what-if scenario in the history of pro football, because only two years later those same standings would have pitted the Packers and Spartans in a championship game. Portsmouth had the stronger defense that season, but only slightly, allowing 10 less points to be scored over the same number of games. However, that Packers offense was a dominant one outscoring the Spartans with the number two offense, 291 to 175. Individually, though, Dutch was selected to his first all-league team. Like the All-American selections in college, there were a few all-pro selectors back then, too. 
That era had brought with it a craze of everyone wanting to determine who was best in football. The 1920s saw numerous selectors be some of the first to name college football national champions. And while the first All-Americans in college football date back to 1889 when Walter Camp made his selections, the 1920s saw numerous news organizations get in the game of doing the same. Both the Associated Press and United Press began their selections around 1925, a season that saw eight All-American selectors. By 1931, both would also be making NFL All-League selections, and many of the selectors worked with players or coaches in the league to make their picks, like Red Grange making selections for the 1930 season or the polling of league coaches being conducted by the mid-30s. And the selections from those days for the All-League or All-Star Pro Team, or as it was sometimes referred to, the Mythical Eleven, are generally considered the predecessor to the modern All-Pro Team, and counted as such. So in 1931, the AP named their All-League selections with Dutch as one of the backs named to the team, Benny Friedman as well, but the United Press had Dutch selected as their first-team quarterback with Friedman on the second team, and his star would begin to wane after that point, but he would go on to be inducted to the College Football Hall of Fame in 1951 and finally inducted to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2005. In 1931, however, Dutch was the new star, and reports at the end of that year praised him for finally convincing skeptical Easterners of his all-around ability. He had produced, and he was once again compared to the greats before him. Greats like Friedman, Ernie Nevers, Jim Thorpe, Bronco Nagurski, and yet again Red Grange. Nagurski actually being a year younger than Dutch, but had entered the league the season prior and also produced. And together with Red Grange, would end up meeting Dutch Clark Spartans the following season in one of the most important games in the league's history. Unfortunately, Dutch would be missing for that game. The 1932 Spartans were expected to be strong contenders. Season previews reported that age is creeping up on the Green Bay squad, who had claimed three straight league titles, and that Portsmouth looms formidably. Dutch was referred to as a star during this season, and in the first matchup with the Packers, despite losing, he was mentioned as the outstanding player of the game. And later that season, in December, he led the Spartans to a victory over those same Packers to take a lead in the standings. He scored two touchdowns and 13 of his team's 19 points in their shutout of Green Bay. At the end of the season, Dutch had been named the first-team All-League quarterback once again. His Spartans were also in a tie at the top of the standings with the Bears. Chicago was 6-1-6, and, and the Spartans 6-1-4. Both of their matchups that season ended in a tie. And back then, ties, which happened more often, did not count towards the winning percentage. Only wins and losses. So the Bears and Spartans were considered to be tied at the top, each with a record of 6-1 and a higher winning percentage than the Packers who finished 10-3-1. Also, in both of their final matchups with the Packers that season, the Bears and Spartans had beaten them. 
Seeing this potential problem brewing, the league had agreed to hold a postseason matchup in the event of a tie in the standings at the end of the regular season. The potential playoff game was announced on Monday after the Spartans beat the Packers in that second matchup, and the date tentatively set for December 18th, if necessary, to be held probably at Chicago. This was also only a few weeks after league president Joe Carr stated that the 1932 season had been one of the best years financially and in popularity. At a time, it was being reported that college football had been taking it on the chin as far as attendance and gate receipts were concerned. So it was no wonder the league wanted to ride that wave of popularity as far as possible. And what better way to do so than a possible championship game with Red Grange and the Bears against Dutch Clark and the Spartans, the two hottest teams in pro football and the two biggest names in the game, plus Bronco Nagurski, another great whose name has carried on throughout time. And a tie at the top of the standings is exactly what we got when the Bears beat the Packers in the final game of the season. That game, of course, has been subject to some question marks, as it was the only game to take place that week, seemingly willing the standings into the result the league wanted. And after a game played in a Chicago blizzard, which benefited the running attack of the Bears, the league got their matchup. The Spartans and Bears would meet in a final deciding game of the season to determine the champion. They had even agreed to utilize a sudden death overtime if needed. And due to the blizzard, the game was going to be played inside Chicago Stadium, where the Blackhawks played and later the Bulls would as well. The NFL's first indoor football game. The only problem was Dutch had already traveled back to Colorado and begun his coaching obligations for the basketball team. He was not going to be at the game. In fact, some reports indicated that the Flying Dutchman has probably played his last game of football. Again, at the time, Dutch stated in an interview that playing pro football was a tough racket, especially playing 60 minutes a game, which was the standard back then due to substitution rules, and he said it was making an old man of him. He was 26. So the Spartans played without him. The Bears won, and that game contained a disputed call that led to a rule modification changing the sport altogether the modern forward pass from anywhere behind the line of scrimmage. Rather than five yards behind it, like Spartans head coach Potsy Clark argued Bronco was not for the Bears' game-winning touchdown. Spartans players decades later would still claim that Bronco was not five yards behind the line, but the referee ruled the pass was legal and the Bears would go on to win. The following offseason, the league changed the rule, which has been referred to as the Bronco-Nagurski rule, and some have argued that change finally made the game the one we know today, something said many times for many different rule changes. But Dutch would not be there to see the benefits of it, at least not at first. He remained in Colorado and took a new job as the head coach of the football and basketball teams at the Colorado School of Mines a school that has fielded a football team since 1888 and was one of the four to form the Colorado Football Association. They still field a team today, and this past season in 2023 played in the Division II National Championship game. So the 1933 NFL season took place without Dutch. Initial reports were that he could possibly return for the final month of the season, but he didn't. 
and not only did that season see the new forward pass rule, but due to the popularity of the impromptu championship game the year before, that season also had the first officially scheduled NFL championship game. Headlines for the game read, Brilliant Aerial Attack Stops New York Giants. The Bears won their second straight pro football crown by a score of 23-21 in front of a reported 30,000 fans. That season also saw the United Press make the claim of selecting the real All-American team regarding their All-Pro list, and to bolster the claim, they had four of the ten head coaches in the league voting on the team. By 1935, the Associated Press would have all the coaches voting for their All-Pro team. Before that, though, it was announced in March of 1934 that the Spartans had been sold. An organization in Detroit had bought the team, the coach, and many of the players. So the team was moving, but more importantly, it was announced that Dutch Clark was going to make his return to pro football, though now as a Detroit Lion. And that first season could not have started off any better. Their defense did not allow a single point to be scored until November eight straight shutouts to start the season. Looking at the offensive box sheet, someone may think Dutch got off to a bit of a slow start, but all reports were the same about Dutch's leadership on the field. Smart generalship on offense led by the Ty Cobb of football, at least according to reports of what Detroit fans were saying. Ty Cobb, of course, being the legendary Tigers baseball player from the early 1900s who was also a player coach for the latter part of his career in Detroit. So, pretty high praise coming from Detroit fans for his first year playing in the city. Then a week after Dutch's 28th birthday, he went on a four-game stretch reminiscent of his All-American season in 1928. He ran for 480 yards, averaging 10.9 yards per carry, and scored six touchdowns over that span, and in one of those games, completed six of seven passes for 107 yards. Then the first loss in Detroit Lions history, not franchise history, came in late November to the Packers. After 10 straight wins to start the season, they lost 3-0, and according to the Detroit Free Press, Green Bay outplayed them in every department, and dashed Dutch's title hopes as well. But the Lions still had some hope left with the undefeated Bears coming to town for the first ever NFL Thanksgiving Day game. Another tradition from the early days of college football when Princeton and Yale would meet on Thanksgiving Day. The first of which took place in 1876 at the St. George's Cricket Grounds in Hoboken, New Jersey. In 1880, the game moved to the original polo grounds in New York City, and by 1890, it was reported that 25,000 people were in attendance for the game that year. Dutch and the Lions carried on that tradition and played in the first ever Thanksgiving Day game of professional football, a tradition that still carries on today. That game was broadcast on the radio by NBC as it had gained national attention, and it saw a reported crowd of 26,000 as the largest crowd to see a football game in Detroit to that point. Unfortunately for Dutch, it was reported that he was playing on an injured ankle that could scarcely bear his full weight. He would still lead the Lions on an early touchdown drive and eventual fourth quarter lead, but they would give up that lead on a Bronco Nagurski touchdown catch late in the game. 
Some considered that Thanksgiving Day matchup the real championship game of the season, at least until those undefeated Bears lost to the Giants in the NFL championship game. Not unlike Eli Manning and the Giants beating the undefeated Patriots in Super Bowl XLII. Those Giants were led by Ed Donowski and future Hall of Famer Ken Strong, and they ended the Bears' run of league titles, at least for a few seasons. Also at an end was Red Grange's career, as he had announced his retirement from pro football prior to the game, though he had only played sparingly that season due to the emergence of Beatty Feathers, who had been the first player to run for a thousand yards in a season, and he was only a rookie. So the galloping ghost was gone, leaving the Flying Dutchman alone as the last remaining back from the list of guys he had been compared to throughout his career, and that Red Grange was being compared to at the end of his career. Benny Friedman, Ernie Nevers, Jim Thorpe, and George Gipp. Now, Red Grange was joining them and leaving the game. And Dutch was getting up there in age as well. Grange was 31 at retirement, spent most of that season on the sidelines, and only played sparingly at 30. So what did Dutch have left in the tank as he was about to turn 29? The answer was everything the Lions needed. Early reports from the preseason varsity vs. freshman game was that Dutch was still the best back on the team. He was the hardest to bring down, and if not the fastest, only Ernie Cadell his equal. He was a threat as a punter. No Lion a more certain tackler. None so sure on forward pass defense. No Lion a better play diagnostician. Clark made his job as field general and captain appear quite easy. As that report pointed out, Dutch was just as important to his team's defenses as well. Defenses that, with him, regularly finished at or near the top of league rankings, and without him, like in 1933, finished middle of the pack. Then on Thanksgiving Day, the Lions and Bears came in with five wins each, after what was reported as a thrilling 20-20 tie between them just four days earlier. The winner would have the inside track at winning the West and playing in the championship game. The Bears were looking to get back for a rematch with the Giants, and Dutch was trying to finally finish a season with a championship win. Reports were that he was exceptional in leading the Lions to a 14-2 win, humbling the Bears, and Dutch scored all their points, still being referred to as elusive while doing so. Three days later, the Lions played their third game in eight days. A win meant winning the West and a berth to play in the NFL Championship against last year's champs and a loss meant Dutch would be on the outside looking in yet again. The Lions beat the Brooklyn Dodgers 28-0 to win the West. Then, two weeks later, in a muddy snowstorm for the 1935 NFL Championship game, the Flying Dutchman did what he did best and piloted his team to a win. As the first quarter was ending, Dutch bounced through a hole on the right side of the line, evaded a few defenders in the middle of the field, and broke free for a bit to the left. Then, as the secondary converged on him, he cut back to the right, reversing field past nearly the entire Giants' defense, 
and finally cut back left, eluding two more defenders to cross the goal line and cap off a 42-yard touchdown run. That was just one of many scores by the Lions as they went on to win 26-7, winning the franchise's first NFL championship. And for the city of Detroit, it was a pretty good time for sports fans. The Tigers had won their first World Series two months prior, and the Red Wings would win their first Stanley Cup just four months later. And Dutch was finally part of a championship game and came out on top. He was also selected to his fourth All-Pro team in his many seasons playing. The next year, the Lions set the rushing record, and at 30 years of age, Dutch had arguably his best year statistically. That was the season he completed 53.5% of his passing attempts, had career highs in passing yards and touchdowns, and had his second best season on the ground, his 1934 season being slightly better, all while leading the league in rushing touchdowns and overall scoring. Unfortunately, with the league's third best record at the end of the season, the Lions were not able to defend their championship, and the Packers, with a dominant aerial attack, won the league title over the Redskins. Dutch was voted to his fifth straight all-league team, receiving 43 of the possible 45 points in the voting, tied for the most with both Don Hudson of the Packers and Cliff Battles of the then-Boston Redskins, who moved to D.C. the following year. Both are now in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and some still consider Hudson to have been one of the greatest pass catchers to ever play the game. Then in 1937, Dutch played his last full season. This was also his first as the player coach. About a month after the 1936 season ended, it was announced he had been signed as the Lions' new head coach, replacing longtime coach Potsy Clark. That season, Dutch made a return to starting every game, as the past two years had seen him only start about half the time and instead he would generally be inserted in the second quarter to keep him fresh for the end of games. He would end up having his third best season in yards per carry, which was good enough for second best in the league, and second only to his own teammate, his reported equal in speed, Ernie Cadell. He again led the league in rushing touchdowns and was fourth in overall scoring, all while leading the Lions as their head coach some pretty valuable contributions. When the season ended, the Lions were second to the Bears in the West, who went on to lose to rookie sensation Slingin' Sammy Baugh and the Redskins' dominant aerial attack. The league was changing, and to end the 1937 season, Dutch stated in interviews that he was done playing. At 31, he was too old, and was stiff and sore like an old man, and at that moment, he felt as though he may never want to play another football game. Even a few months later, he was still saying he had had enough of football, but it's hard to keep out. Then, leading up to the start of the 1938 season, reports were hyping up the showdown of two Rocky Mountain sensations. Rookie Wizard White was the best player to come out of the Rocky Mountains since Dutch Clark, and the league pitted them against each other to start the season. One headline read, Pro Gridiron to Settle Duel of Ability. Then when the showdown came around, the Lions head coach left the Flying Dutchman on the bench. The coach being Dutch himself. 
Wizard White, however, would briefly take the torch being passed to him and go on to lead the league that season in both rushing yards and total yards from scrimmage, then took a page out of Dutch's book and missed the following season, though as a Rhodes Scholar, and after he said his playing days were done, came back to lead the league once more, retired early again, served in the Navy during World War II, and eventually got nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court by JFK. Dutch only played sparingly that season, and by December, there were reports about possible tension between Dutch and the Detroit owner over the direction of the team. Dutch's version of an aerial offensive attack involved too much of the old-school style of running the ball. Revolutionary for his time a decade prior, but the league had moved on, and the Lions wanted to be more modern in their offensive attack. Then shortly after the season, it was announced Dutch had resigned from the Lions and would be moving to the Cleveland Rams. It was initially reported that Dutch would mostly coach and take the field only for spot plays. Then, reported the Rams only wanted him to coach. But by November, Dutch wanted to play in a grudge match against the Lions, said he would give his paycheck to beat them. The Lions, however, refused to let him play. They claimed to still hold his rights as a player and would not let them go. The league backed that claim, and Dutch was not allowed to play. The Flying Dutchman would never play again, thus ending his playing career. That year, 1939, also saw the start of the Joe Carr Memorial Trophy, given to the league's most valuable player. The decision for that had been made at a summer meeting between the league's new leadership and the team's owners and coaches. Longtime league president Joe Carr had passed away in the spring, and this award was to be a memorial to him, a proposal made by George Hallis, founder and coach of Dutch's longtime rival, the Chicago Bears. It was also partially the carrying on of a new league tradition started by Joe Carr that prior fall, a tradition of selecting and awarding who was best in football. The 1930s were amidst the previously referenced national craze of trying to select who was best. The All-American and All-Pro selections were in full swing by then, with the Associated Press having the coaches select the All-League team in 1935. By 1937, they were arguably the biggest name in the game, but the United Press and others were still there. Also in that same time span, the Heisman Award was first given in 1935 to the most outstanding player in college football. The award was given by the New York City's Downtown Athletic Club. By 1937, the Maxwell Award had joined the Heisman for awarding the best player in college football. Both still award the same. And they were not alone. Around the country, other athletic clubs, sports writers, and news agencies were all attempting to do the same and become the big name in selecting who was best in football. One of those was the largest watch manufacturer in the United States, not entirely unlike Rolex sponsoring sports awards today. The Gruen Watch Company, based in Cincinnati, was the largest in the country, so Gruen, along with sports writers and the use of the AP All-Pro votes by the coaches, created their own award for who was best in pro football, the Gruen Award of Merit. Using the voting from the coaches, 
a group of sports writers and editors from around the country added their votes for one player to win this new award. One of those in the group was Alan Gould of the Associated Press, who is credited with creating the AP poll rankings in college football. Those started regularly in 1936. So this was not just some sports writer making their choice for a most outstanding player. Something seen as early as 1927 with Jack McBride of the Giants. And was even seen in 1936 when the United Press named Dutch as their greatest pro of the season. They noted that besides being the smartest quarterback, he starred as a ball carrier, passer, drop kicker, and defenseman. No award was given though. But this was the natural progression back then. Keep in mind, the two main college football rankings for the better part of a century now have been the AP poll and the coaches poll initially conducted by the United Press. So, in 1933, the UP made the claim of being the real selections for the NFL All-Pro team when they had four coaches help make the selections. By 1935, the AP had all the coaches. Then in 1936, the UP made their selection for the individual best in the league. So in 37, the AP polled the coaches and other writers while also teaming up with a commercial sponsor to present an actual award. The Gruen was intended to continue as an annual award given to the pro player a judge to combine best of all athletes in the league, high standard of play with outstanding sportsmanship and significant service for the advancement of professional football. That 1937 season, Dutch had been selected to his sixth All-Pro team in as many seasons playing, and again as the first team quarterback. He received more votes than any other back, and even refrained from voting as he was one of the head coaches who had a vote. So when the writers placed their votes, Dutch was named as the best pro gridman, like the year before when being named the greatest pro and many times before that when he was referred to as the best or greatest in the game. But this time, it was as the winner of a defined award for being the best in pro football. The following season, the NFL teamed up with Gruen, and league president Joe Carr presented the award to the 1938 winner, Mel Hine of the Giants. The presentation took place before the championship game, Reports noted that Dutch won the first. The following spring, Joe Carr passed away. It was that summer the league voted to rebrand the MVP award and presented it to Mel Hine before the annual college all-star game in the fall of 1939. The Joe Carr Memorial Trophy would continue to be the MVP award for the NFL until 1946. There was and never has been any mention of Dutch winning any prior version. Maybe because Mel Hine was also deserving of being the first. And maybe because the NFL later honored Dutch for his accomplishments. But maybe because Dutch's career seemed to have a bit of a rocky end when it came to relations with the league and the team he brought an NFL championship to. And by the time he was later honored, everyone had already forgotten. Regardless, the legend of the gridiron's flying Dutchman is one of carrying professional football for over half a decade, bridging a gap between what were considered the old school and modern games of that time, while being a hybrid of the two, 
and being a fan favorite. Dutch dazzled fans for a decade, from his earliest Rocky Mountain days to the possible Rocky end. He was considered the greatest all-around athlete and the best football player in any game he played. He was also the first NFL player to win a Most Valuable Player award.